on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. Francis Leach with you. How the hell are you? If you're a university student or you work at a university, right now you might be on a bit of a break in in between semesters and you probably need a break because life at university in Australia these days, bloody tough. It's not much fun working there at the moment after years and years and years of neglect uh, from the federal government in particular, which has allowed universities to casualise labour hire and reduce the permanency of staffing arrangements for both academic and professional staff on our Australian university and education campuses to the point where lots of really talented and uh, very well-credentialed people are walking away from their jobs because it just doesn't feel worth it anymore. This has to stop. If we're going to be the sort of country you want to be, we need to invest in our tertiary education. We need to be smarter in how we do it, and we need to make sure that those that are providing that education are paid properly and have decent jobs. It's not too much to ask. So today on The Job, we're going to be talking about those issues, and let's start by catching up with Alison Barnes, who is the National Secretary of the National Tertiary Education Union, the NTEU. Alison, welcome to On The Job. How are you? Very well, Francis. How are you? I'm not too bad. It's been a really, really rough decade or more for the tertiary education sector. So with the change of government, was there a, of the material circumstances haven't changed on campus, but was there a change of atmosphere for academic staff and others uh, with that uh, election result? Look, I think there's a feeling of hope. You know, the last decade, but the last three years in particular have been very difficult for staff and students across Australian universities. We've witnessed a jobs apocalypse with the loss of over 30,000 jobs. We've seen teaching move online, which has been difficult for both staff in terms of their workload and students. So we've had a real pressure cooker situation and essentially we're in this sort of situation where our previous federal government walked away from higher education didn't throw the sector a lifeline, provide a, a rescue package and really left you know, staff at Australian universities and Australian students to bear the cost of the COVID crisis. So with the change of government, of course, there was a degree of hope and excitement that things will be different for higher education across this country. How has it got to a point where the staff at our universities are basically casual employees? I mean, there are some tenure positions in the traditional sense, but for the vast majority of academic staff in particular, they are working almost semester to semester without any job security. How has that been allowed to evolve? Yeah, it's shocking, isn't it? You know, we're in a situation where people are casually employed, people are enrolling contracts. So only one in three one in three workers in Australian universities enjoy secure and ongoing work. And it's really, I think, a damning indictment of both, you know, our previous federal government, but also university executives and management that Australian universities are functioning in this way. When you have people predominantly employed in insecure arrangements, you're open to all sorts of risk, you know, the risk of wage theft, which is rampant across Australian universities. You're open to, I suppose, undermining some of the absolute cornerstones of Australian universities. And that has absolutely terrible implications for the staff You know, they have inability to uh, plan for modest holidays. We have stories of people who are struggling to pay rent. There's all sorts of financial 
and emotional costs for people with ongoing and chronic insecurity, but that also impacts on students who don't get that continuity of relationship that they with, with staff that they want at universities. It impacts on research. So its implications are felt by the individual staff member, by students, and I believe will be felt by Australian society for decades to come unless that situation radically changes. Has it been a case of churn then, a lot of churn in staff because of that? Because eventually people are going to go, well, I want to be an academic. I want to teach this uh, particular area because I'm passionate about it, but I also need to get a home loan or buy a car and I can't do it because I'm a permanent casual worker and it just, it, I just can't get the things done that I want to do in life. Yeah. Look, there's a whole range of reasons. There's been enormous churn. There's been, you know, people leaving the sector because exactly as you said, they can't get home loans, they can't afford holidays, they can't buy cars. But also, you know, we saw in that when COVID first hit the sector, we saw casuals across the sector really being let go in huge numbers. It's worth noting that it's not just teaching and research staff or academic staff who are casual across our universities. It's also professional staff. So people who provide the pastoral care for students, people who make sure the IT is working. So it's across all facets of university life. And this, as I said, as I said earlier, is really damaging the integrity or the fabric of our universities. What's happened at universities that these things that you were talking about, which are obvious to those of us who, with even a passing interest in what's going on on campuses around Australia, that the university administrations don't see any value in fixing these problems, that they don't see that their institutions are being degraded or the standard of the education they're delivering is being diminished or the staff that they, you know, they invest a lot, of, you invest a lot of time and energy into putting good staff in place, but you don't pay them well enough for them to feel secure and, and to build a legacy within those jobs that they take. Is it a blind spot or is it an ideological thing? I think it's a damning indictment of university managements that they are prepared and in fact have driven this level of casualisation. They have choices and they have chosen to drive insecurity across their workforces to the detriment of their institutions, their staff and their students. Insecure employment is essentially the business model that uh, university managers have employed and they're relying on staff to be dependable but disposable, you know, so that they can be let go at a moment's notice. And I think that's absolutely putting the fabric of our universities at risk. We're putting the well-being of staff at risk and we're damaging, I suppose, our students and our universities, as I said earlier, the cornerstones of our universities. So the cost of, a, say, an arts degree has never been higher than it is in Australia at the moment, over $100,000 per degree to get your arts degree done. I know it more than doubled in the last couple of years, yet the unit cost going to actually paying staff has never been lower in terms of what the unit staff are being paid without all the benefits that come with secure work like uh, like holiday pay, sick pay, maternity leave, uh, all of those things that, that actually you know mean that you've got a, a proper job. So where's that money in the middle going? If it's costing that much and they're delivering less in terms of investment in the staff to deliver the courses, where's it going, Alison? That's a very good question and one perhaps you should put to university executives. You can look at a whole range of things. You know, I think it's a good question for them, but you look at the blowout in executive remuneration. You know, those remuneration packages for vice-chancellors, you know, they're at a million dollars. You know, you're paying yourself a million dollars 
whilst stealing the wages of your employees because as a wage theft is absolutely rampant across our sector so it's in it's in the the wages of of university vice chancellors and senior management across the sector but it's also in all of the things like you know during covid crisis the investment in buildings and investment in brandings rather than investing in staff and students can we talk about wage theft and how it manifests on Australian campuses and Australian universities? It's different, I guess, a little bit to uh, the sectors that we're more famous for. We talk hospitality or whatnot. And this is about stealing time, isn't it? And by stealing academics' time, by making them feel pressured into, say, marking papers well beyond the time that they're actually being paid, they don't get paid for that work. And in essence, it's a form of wage theft. That's right, Francis. That's one form of wage theft in a university is not being paid properly for the time it takes to mark an essay or mark an exam or prepare for a lecture or class. But wage theft across our universities takes a whole range of forms. We've seen work be reclassified. So it's exactly the same work, but it's reclassified so that it's paid less. We see people not being actually paid for the hours they work. So there's a whole range of ways wage theft is playing out across our universities. But what shocks me is not only the extent of the wage theft, it is common across virtually every campus in the country, but these are public institutions. You know, these are public institutions and we have universities' executives really overseeing employment relations that steal the wages of the most vulnerable workers. And that happens in a range of different ways. And it's really as a direct consequence of insecure employment. We never see wage theft of vice-chancellor wages. We only see wage theft for those who are most vulnerable to exploitation. We're going to speak to one academic in a moment, David Harris, who was uh, brave enough to speak out on these issues uh, in front of a parliamentary inquiry recently, which takes some guts because if you speak out and you're a casual worker, that means you put yourself in the firing line for losing work. And that is part of the business model too, a compliant workforce that won't speak out about abuses of their paying conditions because they're afraid they're going to lose hours. It's a catch-22 they're in, but David's been brave enough to do that. We'll talk to him in a moment. But just to finish with you, new government, New opportunity, same old challenges, but what are the key things you want to get done in the next little while that will start to shift the needle back to a fairer, more secure system for academics and professional staff on campuses and in turn deliver the sort of quality education that people are paying for? Fantastic question, Francis. Look, what we're really asking for is a change to the casual conversion laws so that casuals, people performing genuinely casual work, can convert to secure and full-time jobs. We'd also like things like transparency We would around casual employment figures. We're asking for university management to be compelled to be transparent about how many people they actually employ casually. Long term, we'd like to see more funding for our universities so that they can really excel in performing their core functions. And essentially, for us, that would look like 1% of GDP funding, which brings us into line with other OECD countries. If you had 1% of GDP funding allocated to our universities, you'd be able to employ 26,000 people in in insecure employment relations. You'd be able to provide free undergraduate 
education for Australian students. So really, we're looking for, you know, an end to insecure employment across our sector by changing the casual conversion laws. But we're also really keen to look at, I suppose, the governance of our universities and that injection of funding that the sector so desperately needs. Alison, thank you for being with us here on The Job. Fantastic. Thanks so much for having me, Francis. Alison Barnes, the National Secretary of the National Tertiary Education Union, the NTEU, with us on the job. And right after this, we'll talk to David Harris, an academic who spoke out about casualisation and the damage it's doing to those working in our universities. On the job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. We just spoke with Alison Barnes, who tells me she's the national president, not the national secretary of the NTEU. Get that right, Francis. Giving us the overall picture of what it's like to be working on a university campus at the moment. But what about as an individual, as a teacher, as an academic who's worked very, very hard to get an opportunity to do what you love, pass on the knowledge that inspires you, inspire the next generation, be a teacher and an academic. Well, it should be a job that's celebrated and protected, but it's not. It's a casualised job that can disappear semester after semester. You never know if you're going to be re-employed. And in those periods of time in between work, over the summer and right now, for instance, in university breaks, you don't get paid at all. It's mad. One person who is prepared to speak up about that is with us now. David Harris is an academic. He works at Swinburne Uni in Melbourne, but right now he is on a holiday. He's in Berlin, Germany, enjoying a northern summer, and before he heads out to enjoy the wonders of that fabulous city, he joins us on the job. G'day, David. How are you? G'day, Francis. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. Tell people what your sort of area of expertise is and what you've been teaching at Swinney. So I'm a lecturer and tutor in game design and philosophy of play at, uh, at Swinburne University. How many years have you been doing that? I've been doing that for, uh, I think this is now going to be my seventh year, just starting uh, starting my seventh year now. Yeah, I think so, halfway through the semester. And for seven years you've been a casual employee at university teaching? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, yes, I have been a casual teacher. So I'm only paid uh, for the classes that I teach and during the semesters that I teach as well. For seven years? I mean, the whole issue around casual conversion in lots of industries, if you've been doing the same job for seven years, you usually there are, you know, increasingly there are uh, mechanisms to convert your job into a permanent job because, you know, that's what it is. But for you and for other academic staff, that just isn't available to you. No, not at all. And uh, it's not without trying either. I had applied to become permanent position twice now and been rejected twice. And the kind of goalposts for how I can be eligible and not eligible just seem to change from year to year or from application to application. So what sort of things change? Are they, is, it, is it basically saying you've, you've not met a particular standard of teaching, you haven't done enough hours? What are they doing to make sure that you cannot get that tenure or that permanent job? Yeah, it's a great question and I wish I knew the answer uh, to some degree. First, it was time. They said I wasn't eligible to become permanent position until I hit a certain number of hours. I hit those hours a number of years ago. And most recently, it was because I'm not qualified enough to become a permanent member of staff, which is surprising to me because I'm currently doing my PhD and it seems like I won't be able to be a member of staff until I finish my PhD. But I'm qualified enough to teach 
So it doesn't really make sense. Like I wouldn't be, it wouldn't be adding on to anything more than I'm doing. I would just become what's described as an academic tutor um, rather than a sessional tutor. How much does it mean to you to have an opportunity to have that sense of permanency in this job after seven years? It would be incredible. I can't tell you how stressful it's been, especially over the last two years, not knowing whether I'd be getting work every couple of months. Every semester, I am contacted maybe three weeks out in advance before the semester starts, telling me what days I'll be working and how many hours are being offered to me. I really don't like working like that. Obviously, I would prefer to have you know a set number of hours and a set number of days rather than just hoping and praying that I'll get enough work in order to cover the bills every semester. So anxiety, is that something that you permanently live with as a consequence because of that uncertainty? Well, let me put it like this. Um, In 2020, obviously, when the pandemic hit, my partner lost her job entirely. I then spent the next two years being the sole breadwinner of our household. And basically, we were living relatively paycheck to paycheck and it was based on the goodwill of my direct boss who is not necessarily a part of the university administration he's a teacher as well and it's only thanks to my good relationship with him that he cut down his hours i believe to give me more hours and then i have to squirrel away all the money that i make during the semester half of my money goes towards my savings account and the other half goes towards my, you know, spending account, and so that I can survive the next holiday break in between semesters. So living off of one income based on purely kind of theoretical payments, I wouldn't say that's an easy life, and nor is it a fun life to live. Certainly not. Sounds really stressful. And that seasonal nature of the work as well. I mean, having long breaks where there are no classes, therefore you're not being employed, it makes it virtually impossible to have any continuity in your life. How do you feel about the universities and how they see you and your contribution because they treat you this way? I'm honestly so angry with the higher-ups in the university. And I should make it clear that I think there's a clear delineation between those on-the-ground teachers, those people who are actually working with the students day in and day out. I don't just work at Swinburne University. I work also at UNSW remotely. I had to pick up that second job purely to make sure that I could have more consistency in my pay. And both those systems or both those universities have a clear delineation between those people who are actually doing what I would describe as the work of a university which is the work of education, the work of engaging with students, and not just students in regards to you know, teaching them things, but also engaging with them as human beings. Then there's what I would describe as the administration of a university who runs a university like a business and treats everyone below that level of delineation as uh, nameless or faceless workers. I've not met anyone in that administration sector who would know my name nor know what I would do but they would be more than happy to decide my value based on the criteria that is unknown to me. It's incredibly, incredibly frustrating. And I believe that when you find out that your vice chancellor has been given a bonus in a year that 20% of the staff were cut, you don't feel like you're valued as a person at that workplace. You don't feel like you are 
you, you just feel exploited. I think that's, that's the way I feel. I just feel constantly being used for them to earn faceless uh, individuals more money. And it really gets under my skin. And fair enough too. It, it should, and uh, it's understandable that it does. With that situation being what it is, how hard is it to maintain, I guess, your commitment to your vocation to deliver the sort of education for those that you're teaching? I mean, we spoke with Alison, and one of the things she raised was the idea that sometimes the universities just crimp your time. They'll give you, say, a couple of hours to mark a series of assessments when really it should take you twice that time, but you only get paid for half. And so therefore they know they're getting you to work for free because your commitment to the uh, vocation of teaching means that you're not going to scrimp and cut corners on, on marking people's essays. They're just exploiting you straight out to do the work for nothing. How do you navigate that and, and be um, you know, faithful to your commitment to the students without feeling like you're just completely allowing yourself to be exploited? Uh, I think that's a really good question, and, and I think you phrased it really well there, the faithful with your commitment to the students. Um, when I first started seven years ago, I would spend literally hours and hours and hours and hours on, on every kind of assignment area, and I would kind of sit down and go, giving detailed feedback would give you know lots of engagement, uh, sit down and read every single word that I could, and double-check all the references. Now, that's that's what you're supposed to do, right? But I am now up to the point, and like I used to, <laughs> the more experienced staff would come to me and be like, David, you can't do that because if you do that, you're spending two, three times as long as you are being paid. And I was like, no, but I have a commitment to my students. I have a commitment to make sure that their learning is the best that they possibly can be. Um, nowadays, though, I can't give feedback. I, and I tell my students that. I, I say to them in class, I say, hey, if you would like some feedback, you have to come to me in class when we're you know, doing group work and come up to me and ask what the feedback for the essay is. Because now, because I realized how many hours I was working unpaid. And it's this vicious cycle that occurs where you are always on the chopping block if your reviews from your students are not good. And so you are kind of balancing this thing where it's like, well, your students have this incredible power to make sure you keep your job to some degree. And if you don't do the work for them, if you don't provide that commitment for them, then you obviously get bad reviews. And then the university turns around and says, well, why do you have a bad reviews? And you turn to them and say, well, I have bad reviews because I, I can't do the work that you need me to do because you're not paying me then they kind of turn around and say, well, do less. I think there was a chancellor in Sydney actually recently that just said that feedback should be optional. Feedback should now be an optional thing, which is ridiculous because are we not a place of education? Are we not supposed to be committing to the kind of like progress and kind of wealth of knowledge that these students are getting and how would they get that if they never get any piece of feedback? Yeah, it's just a terrible, terrible thing. David, you did provide some testimony to a, a hearing on the tertiary education system. And what was that like? And were there implications for you? Because we spoke about with Alison about the fact that being a casual worker, to speak out about the employer that you work for and the conditions and circumstances under which you work could imperil future work opportunities. Has that happened to you? Yeah, well, look, I can't say for sure, but I certainly have a suspicion of. Let's just say I can't tell whether it is the bureaucracy being just inadequate as it usually is or whether 
I've received some kind of backlash. So earlier this year, I did come out saying that I had been approached by Swinburne University to pay back a certain amount of money. I can tell you exactly how much that money is. It's $332.82. They had overpaid me due to clerical error and that they were sending debt collectors after me to get that money back. I was amazed that they were going to send debt collectors after so little money. I raised my issue with the union. The union did an investigation and found out that 500 other workers had also been overpaid and that they had been essentially bullied into trying to pay that money back. According to Fair Work Law, if your employer overpays you due to clerical error, you do not need to pay the money back, but I didn't know that at the time, and having the threat of a debt collector, and in the email they said that they that would affect my credit score as someone who is you know, hoping to afford a house as much as I can possible, that terrified me. So I paid it back. Anyway, I started my semester at the beginning of the year after all that had done. I'd come up to the paper. I'd spoken publicly about it um, and how I felt pretty angry about the whole situation. I started teaching and I teach three units for the first semester. And one of those units is my kind of what I call my money unit. It's the unit that I do the most work for, I get the most hours for. Essentially, it sets me up for the entire year. And uh, I looked at my paycheck, you know, a couple of weeks in because the university is really terrible with its paychecks. Like it's just payment system. So hadn't checked for a little while. Checked and I was like, oh, I'm not getting a lot of money. Um, I double checked how much money I was getting and it was only a quarter of the amount of money that I should be getting. And so this had gone on for about half of a semester and I emailed the payroll saying, excuse me, um, I believe I'm owed, you know, this amount of money. And the payroll sector was like, well, you're not technically teaching that unit. You know, there was no form submitted for you to pay this unit. I've been teaching this unit for five years. I don't know how I suddenly wasn't on the payroll anymore for this unit, but also I felt it was incredibly ironic that a university now owed me money, <laughs> way more than $332.82. And I felt like I should email them saying, well, look, I'm going to contact a debt collecting agency and I want you to, <laughs> to, to get me my money <laughs> or your, your credit score will be affected. So look, I, I honestly don't think that that was um, a repercussion of me coming out, but it did feel very spooky and I was very annoyed that that situation had even occurred even after I had kind of come forward. It sounds like the, the blackest of black comedies. Look, just to finish, David, and thank you for sharing your story and, and sort of illustrating just how dire things are for workers on our university and tertiary campuses. Are you going to keep teaching? Is it uh, Given everything that's happened, and, and it's probably testament to your passion for what you do, are you going to keep doing it? We said it earlier, it's a vocation. I love teaching. I love teaching uh, so much. I love engaging with the students. I love helping them learn. Every semester, every year, I receive several emails from students telling me that the way that I taught them, the way that I engaged with them, either helped them in ways that went way beyond education. Um, I've had students that have come up to me and said, thank you so much. My mental health is, you know, you act as a holistic person for some of the students sometimes. The actors, you know, mentor, as guides, as, you know, psychologists sometimes. I've had students who come to me and said, you're the first person that has given me an education that wasn't embarrassing or wasn't demeaning or some 
people come up to me and say, you're the first teacher that's ever really cared about us as students in a university sector. And I think with those kind of like comments, it's very hard to walk away from. I actually really, really care about my students a lot. I would be so remiss to, to kind of leave them. On that note, I do feel more and more of a pressure to go, to walk away. The more time I spend in the sector, the less time. Well, it's this weird thing where it's the more time I spend working as a sessional tutor, the less opportunity I have to branch out my skill set into other areas. So you kind of start getting painted into this corner. So if I lost everything tomorrow, I would be back to, you know, trying to find work, uh, you know, sustainable work that might be very difficult. So hopefully I'll be able to stay, but I am starting to think of my options. David, your students are very lucky to have you and the university is too. Your students value you. It's a shame your employer doesn't. And hopefully through the work that you're doing with the union and for speaking out, uh, they can be held to account and making sure that uh, people such as yourself who are, are doing the right thing by Australia's students get the recognition, support and permanency and work that they deserve. Enjoy your time in Berlin and thanks for being with us on the job. Thank you, Francis, and thank you so much for asking me to come on board. David Harris, the academic, who's telling us his personal story about being a sessional tutor for over seven years without permanent employment and the consequences of that. That's it for this episode of On The Job. You can follow us on the socials at Sally Rugg. I'm at St. Frankly on Twitter. Send us an email, otjpodcast at protonmail.com. Any questions or story ideas or topics you want us to cover, we'd love to hear from you. And give us a rating on your favourite app, whatever that is, uh, so that people can find the information and inspiration. Uh, write us a review, give us some stars. It helps them bump it up the charts and people find it in their weird little algorithm and all that sort of stuff. My name's Francis Leach. Have a great week and we'll catch you on the next edition. Bye-bye. <laughs>